This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture reading is from Haggai chapter 2, verse 10 to 23. I will be reading from NIV version. On the 24th days of the nine months, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Ask the priest what the law said. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread, or steel, some wine, olive oil, or other food. Does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with these people and this nation in my sight, declared the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measure, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine bed to draw 50 measure, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hand with blood, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declared the Lord. From this day on, from these 24 days of the nine months, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the bun? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive, or olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heaven and the earth. I will overturn royal throne and shatter the power of the foreign kingdom. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declared the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Jerubabel, son of Shetel, declared the Lord, and I will make you like my scenic ring, for I have chosen you, declared the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. I will now pass the time now to Pastor Andrew Ong to teach us God's word. Thank you. Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's really good to see you all this morning. And uh, really good as we come to the end of Haggai and what a great book has been. So let's uh, go to God in prayer now as we ask for God to help us once again as we always do so that he may give us the Holy Spirit that we may truly understand and grasp and take to heart what Haggai has to tell us today. So let's bow our heads in prayer. So join me as I bow my head as we go to God in prayer together. Dear Father, as we come before you today, Truly, we want to thank you for you are a God who speaks. You're a God who assures, a God who encourages. And uh, it's been no different as we have come to the book of Haggai. And we do pray that you will help us as we look at your word once again, that you will help us to truly uh, be focused, be not distracted, and to take to heart what your word is telling us. 
so that uh, whether in good times or bad times, whether in COVID or non-COVID, uh, we will always have a true and certain hope. We will always have a sure and certain faith. And we pray for you, all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So today I uh, have a question for you. Uh, is what is the biggest problem uh, in your life? Now, for many of us, we may think that uh, the big problem that we have in our life is COVID. Right? I mean, obviously, we just talked about COVID right a moment ago. Uh, maybe it may be finances, maybe your exams, maybe relationships, family or marriage or otherwise with friends. It may be job. It may be a whole host of things which you feel are the biggest problems in your life. Now, in many ways, I suppose these are what we feel at different seasons of our life as the biggest problem in our life. But there is one problem which stays with us forever, from the moment we're born to the moment we die. This is the problem which the Bible talks about. This is God's perspective of what our biggest problem is. And that biggest problem can be really summed up in just four letters, one word. And that problem is holy, okay? Now, this is not a word we use very often in the newspaper or in, uh, you know, in, uh, when we talk about uh, what we read about in the newspaper or social media. We don't usually use this word holy very often. But it is the biggest problem that we have in our lives. Now, why is it the biggest problem that we have in our lives? Well, the reason is because God himself, we know from God's word in the Bible, is holy. So in heaven, right, the, 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 the angels and the creatures all bow down before God, and we're told in the book of Revelation. And how do they worship God? They keep saying to God day and night. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. So we have a God who is not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy God. And that presents us with our biggest problem. Because in order to, to meet with this God, in order to have fellowship with this God, in order to uh, have friendship with this God, in order to have communion with this God, God tells us that we too need to meet him on his terms, which is to be holy just like he is. So in the book of Leviticus, it tells us, do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Now, the problem is, if we don't meet God on his terms of holiness, what happens? God judges us and we die. So again, in Leviticus chapter 16, it says, the, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover of the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So when we go to God, we cannot just anyhow play play and go and to God anyhow we please. We need to go to God as he is, which is holy. So as we've seen in this passage, we either approach God in, on his terms, being holy as he is, or if we are unclean, then we face death and 
judgment. Now, the problem for us is we are unclean. We are not holy. So here we have a quote from the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah meets God. And what happens? Well, the first thing he does is he recognizes the holiness of God. So in his vision, he sees the vision of God. And it says they were calling to one another, the angels, right? Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And so Isaiah recognizes the reality of our predicament, the reality of our situation, the reality of our problem. And what is that? The problem is we are unclean people. And as a result, we are unable to meet with a holy, holy God. You see here, it says that up there, right? Uh, sorry, wrong, wrong hand. No entry. Because we are unclean, we cannot meet with a holy, holy God. Instead, as we see down below, our prospects are that we will be judged and we face death. Now, that is the context of what we are looking at today as we look at the book of Haggai. All right, so as we come to the book of Haggai, it deals with these issues, the issue of holiness. Now, in the Old Testament, God had given a temporary way for unclean people to meet with a holy, holy God. Now, Leviticus 16, it outlines to us the sacrificial system. And that's what I uh, put here graphically, symbolically, behind, underneath me right here now. Okay, So this is the sacrificial system where an animal would be sacrificed for the sins of the people to give atonement and to make people clean. All right, so in Leviticus 16, it says, then Aaron, Aaron was the priest, all right? Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place. And he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in a holy place and put on his regular garments. And then she shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. So here the offering is made for the priest as well as the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th, 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native born or an alien living among you. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean of all, from all your sins. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, so here God gives a temporary solution to the problem of uncleanness, where uh, all this sin, uncleanness, unholiness, defilement is transferred or substituted through the sacrificial transfer to the animal, right? So all the sins, the uncleanness, the unholiness, 
they're all put on the poor sacrificial animal and he is sacrificed and the people are then made clean. Okay, so the unclean people then become clean. Now, this is really good news, right? Because then allows people, these unclean people, to have access or fellowship with a holy God. So this is where we find ourselves now in the book of Haggai. Okay, because the temple has been in ruins for 66 years and all the questions of uncleanness are now addressed by God as we come to Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. So let's see what happens in Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. I hope you're following with me now. Uh, I know for some of you, if you're new to the Bible or you're a young Christian, this might be all brand new to you, but don't worry. We'll try to make it as simple as possible so that you can follow what we are saying. Because, you know, obviously, it's, you know, all this cultural, religious stuff that you need to understand as background, but it's actually quite straightforward uh, once you get your mind around it. So in chapter 2, verse 10, uh, it says, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. So God speaks again through the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If a person carries consecrated, so the word consecrated here, as we saw earlier, just another big word for the word holy, okay? If a person carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? Again, the big word, right? Or does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person is defiled or becomes unclean, right? by contact with a dead body, touches one of these things, does it become unclean or defiled? Yes, the priest answered, it becomes defiled. Now, it's probably easier for us to understand this when we look at it in picture format, okay? So, the first principle here is pretty straightforward. So, there's consecrated meat, okay? So, the consecrated meat is probably the meat that's sacrificed. This meat is holy, as we've already seen in the earlier passage, right? Okay, so this meat is holy before God. It's consecrated. Now, it is then carried, okay, obviously not in a shopping bag like this, but carried in the fold of their clothes. Now, now you you know, nowadays our clothes are all very nice fitting, right? You see my clothes, they're all quite tight fitting. You wear t-shirts. Uh, all of you, I can see on the picture, you're all wearing tight fitting clothes. But in the ancient world, you can see like below, right? Uh, their clothes were not like manufactured in different sizes, you know, S, M, L, XL, right? You can't go to Uniqlo and choose all the different sizes. I think, you know, the, the way that they dress, as you can see below, they, they wore loose-fitting clothes, a bit like uh, getting your bed sheet and just throwing it over your body. And so I suppose, you know, when they carried food, uh, they didn't have, you no know, clothes were very expensive, right? It's not like they had lots of cloth everywhere lying around. So they used the folds of their clothes, so they used the extra bits of their clothes, the loose-fitting parts, to carry the meat, the holy meat. And so the question is then asked, does the clothes that carry the holy meat become holy? And what's the answer? Well, the priest said, yes, it becomes holy. So then the second question then is, the clothes, the fold of the clothes, right, which you use to carry the meat, when it then touches food, like wine, uh, all the other stuff they were talking about, uh, you know, uh, olive oil, bread. Does this food now become holy? Does it transfer from the meat 
to your clothes, to the food? And the answer is no, right? It doesn't become holy. It's still unclean, the food in and of itself. Okay, so that's the first principle, okay? You with me? First principle, straightforward, right? So the second uh, thing that was uh, put before the priest was there is a dead body, okay? The dead body, according to the Old Testament law in the book of Leviticus, is unclean. Dead body, unclean. So person touches, right? The dead body. Do they become unclean? The answer is yes, they become unclean. Then person who touched the dead body now touches food. Does that uncleanness now transmit into the food? The priest says, yes, it does, right? And so what's happening here is a very, very important principle. The principle of transmission, right? I guess we're all very familiar with this word now that COVID is around, right? How well something transmits, how well something passes on, all right? And so what we see here is that holiness actually doesn't transmit very well at all. The, the meat only transmits to the clothes, but it doesn't then transmit onto the food itself. Whereas we see that uncleanness, defilement, is very easily transmitted, transmits from the dead body to the person, to the food. And so what we see here is this next picture, right? <clears throat> it's like this unlimited transmission. It goes from the dead body to the person. If the person touches somebody else, they become unclean. Then if that person touches somebody else, that other person becomes unclean until finally everything and everyone and everybody is also unclean. Now, what is the point of this questions? Why does God, through the prophet Haggai, pose these questions to the priest? Well, that's where we go on to verse 14. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, whatever they offer, there is defiled. Okay? So the principle here God is applying is that when he looks at this people, when he looks at this nation, they are following that principle of defilement. Right? It's like they are defiled in every way. So whatever they do, whatever they offer, everything is unclean. Everything is defiled. And so the picture can be seen like this. So here we see Haggai, okay, this is just, he doesn't look like this, obviously. So you see here Haggai and uh, the people in, 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 in uh, his time. We see here people in his time building their own houses, as we saw in chapter 1. In God's eyes, all of these people, including Haggai, the governor, Zerubbabel, Joshua, the high priest, all the people living those days, they are all unclean, right? It's like the whole community has been infected by this uncleanness is spread from one person to the other, to the other, to the other, until everyone is unclean. Now, why is that so? And how does that relate back to the situation in 520 BC? Well, I think there's probably three main ways to understand why they're all so unclean. It could be, 
because they have this ruined temple within their midst. And what God is saying is that, you know, this ruined temple is like this body, this dead body in the community, and it's infecting and spreading everyone with uncleanness. Another way of understanding it is what I show you below here, okay, is that because the temple itself is ruined, the sacrificial system that God had instituted is now out of order. Uh, initially, maybe God had accepted the temporary altar that had set up, but now God has, is declaring that without the temple and without its sacrificial system, God doesn't accept their sacrifices anymore. And so uncleanness is everywhere. There is no means, temporary or otherwise, of solving the problem of cleanness. The other way of understanding also is that this ruined temple is part of the bigger problem of God's people and the nation. It's a bit like they are, there's moral, it's a symbol of moral defilement within the community. It's a symbol of religious defilement within the community. So everything they do, even the rebuilding of the temple is defiled. Everything they touch, everything they do is defiled. And so we see here from these three uh, ways of understanding the passage that they are serious, serious problems because they are unclean before God and therefore they cannot meet God. They have a ruined temple, like a dead body. There's no sacrificial system. The temple itself is a symbol of their disobedience and stubbornness towards God. Everything they do, including the temple itself, is now unclean. So what does God then say? Well, God then says to them in verse 15, Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with mildew, sorry, blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So what he's trying to get them to do here is to give careful thought to consider things, okay? So here, the, the, the idea of give careful thought and to consider, he wants them to reflect on how things were before they started rebuilding the temple, okay? And so here, as they consider the past, right? As you can see here, you know, they're thinking about what happened. God wants them to think and think and think and reflect and reflect and reflect and contemplate and ask themselves, why is it that instead of having blessings, they're having curses? It's a bit like, you know, you go to your NTUC or your, uh, I don't know, your Sing and you buy like uh, rice. And you, you know, you buy like 20 kg of rice, but then you only eat 10 kg and then you don't know what happens to the rest. Or, you know, you bought like 20 bottles of wine and you put it in your store area and then you go... And then hey, after you drink 10 bottles of wine, there's nothing left. And so, you know, it's like, why is this thing happening, right? How come I'm buying 20, but I'm only drinking 10? Or why do I buy 50 and it's only 20? And God is saying, well, when you reflect, when you contemplate, when you think about things, it must be because you are unclean, because I'm cursing you. And why is this thing happening, right? Why are these curses happening? And it's because, it says here, 
you did not turn to me. And that's why I struck all your work with blight and mildew and hail, right? All these natural things which were happening to their harvest wasn't because of global warming. It was because God was wanting them to reflect, to think, right? To contemplate and to realize that actually the curses that were coming upon them was because of their stubborn heart, their disobedience. They were ignoring and turning their backs to God. Now, this is really good in a way, right? Because, you know, God is not some sort of grumpy God or petty God or retaliatory God who just wants to, you know, make them suffer for the sake of suffering. God actually sends his people curses, right? Unproductive crops, right? Uh, Shortfall in their material things. Why? Because he loves them. He cares for them. He wants them to turn back to him to turn away from their stubborn hearts and their disobedience. And that's why it's such good news then when we then read, right? Oops, sorry, I missed the slide, right? That God wants them to repent, to change their mind and their heart. So it's really good news then we read from verse 18 onwards because it says then from verse 18, from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there any, yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. And so what God says is really music to the ears of the listener. So God talks about this foundation day, okay, the day where the foundation is laid on the temple. Now, foundation day is where like, there's this official ceremony where you lay the foundation stone. Now, obviously, you know, uh, this only happens when there's some notable building, right? You, you, you know, it's not like they, had, they laid the foundation for your, you know, block 265 in, uh, you know, Haogang Street 17 or something, right? They don't do that. You only lay foundation stones when there is a notable building, right? So in India, when they build the Serum Institute, okay, they have the foundation day. Uh, one of the largest building construction projects in the Netherlands, they have a foundation day. Uh, when they want to build the, uh, man, uh, the foundation stone for in China, for the water manufacturing base, they laid a foundation stone. And so God is saying, look, the day that you had this foundation ceremony, the foundation day of the temple was a great day. It was a great day because in God's eyes, it showed for him collectively, corporately, that there was a change of heart where God saw in his people that they were no longer turning away from God, but they were turning to God. They had repented. Instead of being busy with their own houses, they now were busy with God's temple. And this was a great, great, great day. Because God, because of what they did that day, recognized that they had changed and they turned back to him. And so what happens then after this foundation day in the temple? Well, before they were unclean and they were curses, right? So here we see, right, this cartoon I thought, you know, still no fruit, okay? God is still cursing them. And before the foundation day of the temple, in God's eyes, 
his people were still ignoring him and turning their backs to him. But that foundation day represents before God a turning point because it represents a day where they turn back to him and they're now building the temple. And from that day, he sees them as clean. He blesses them. He says to you, from this day, I will bless you. And the seeds that were now in the ground would all come up to big pomegranate trees and wine trees and olive trees. And that's such a wonderful thing that we see here, right? Because we see that God, from the beginning of Haggai, telling the people to turn back to him, to not be busy with their own stuff, to now, in chapter 2, the people actually turning back, building the temple, turning their hearts back to him, and God blessing them. They're now holy, they're now clean, and they're now blessed by God. Now, this is a wonderful thing, but I think that as we look at ourselves, uh, in terms of biblical theology, uh, there's even a greater, greater message for us today because obviously we don't have the sacrificial system. We're not building the temple anymore. So what is the way that we and unclean people meet with God? Well, God gave the temporary solution in the sacrificial system. God gave the temporary solution of the sacrificial system within the temple. But for us, we have the great, great permanent solution in the person of Jesus Christ. So here we see at the bottom below me, right? we no longer have the sacrificial system of the lamb, but we have the once for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And this makes us holy so that we can meet with the holy God. In Jesus, right, which is over here, in Jesus, we have the temple. We are holy in Jesus. And therefore, we can meet a holy God. And therefore, it's such a wonderful thing that we actually see that in Jesus dying for our sins, we have been given the solution to our biggest problem, which is an unclean people meeting a holy God. In 1 Peter 3, it says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the righteous, to bring you to God. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, it says in verse 27, Just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so we see here in the book of Haggai, the fulfillment in Jesus that we don't rely on the sacrificial system of lambs year after year, but Jesus Christ dying for us once for all. Jesus has solved the biggest problem of us all to make an unclean people holy to meet God by sacrifice and substitute. Now, Jesus, if we can see here, does really amazing things. Because you remember the principle here of how uncleanness or defilement is like, it just spreads unlimited, right? You know, it's almost like this 
COVID, which you can't stop, right? It just keeps going on from person to person to person. But Jesus is, is able to stop the spread of COVID, not COVID, sorry, stop the spread of uncleanness, right? So we see a few examples of this in the Bible. In Mark chapter 8, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So a man with leprosy, okay? This man with leprosy is unclean, okay? So theoretically, when he touches someone, that person becomes unclean. The man with leprosy, the unclean man, came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now look at what Jesus does. Jesus reaches out his hand and touched the man. So theoretically, Jesus himself should then become unclean. But what happens instead? Jesus touches the man and says, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. See what happens here? The unclean touches Jesus, but instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the unclean leper becomes clean and is cured instead. Isn't that amazing? Okay, we can see that again in another illustration. So in, uh, in the book of uh, Mark, I think, or was it Luke? we can see that later in the next, because this uh, reference flows on. There was a, a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, so she was considered unclean according to the law, right? What does she do? She touches Jesus. Now, if she touches Jesus, Jesus should become unclean too. What happens? Jesus heals her bleeding. He doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean because now her bleeding has stopped. Again, amazing, right? The reversal of the problem of uncleanness. Again, in this passage, in Mark chapter two, uh, in Mark chapter five, right? Again, Jairus's daughter is dead. Okay, remember what we said: dead body, unclean. What does Jesus do? Jesus touches her, takes her by the hand, so he should become unclean. But instead, what happens? The girl becomes alive and clean again. So what we see here in Jesus is really remarkable because Jesus, once for all, solves for us the problem of uncleanness. He dies for our sins, substitutes himself, sacrifices himself. He has the power to reverse the power of uncleanness. And so we are now able to meet with God. But I think there's great news in the Haggai chapter 2, but also a warning, isn't it? Because the warning is really that God's people had turned away from God. And that's a warning for us too. We can turn away from God. If we turn away from Jesus as our substitute, we turn away from Jesus as our once-for-all sacrifice. What happens? Well, we can no longer meet with God. We are instead going to face death and judgment. So a bit of church history here. This person is Jonathan Edwards, okay, Jonathan Edwards, very, very famous preacher, very good writer. If you ever get a chance to read his, uh, read his writings or sermons, highly recommended. I recommend that you do. And you know, one of his most famous, famous sermons is a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this sermon is so important because it is believed to be one of the catalysts or the things that start what is called the Great Awakening in America, where uh, I guess there was this great revival in America as a result of him preaching this sermon and many people being converted. And that was the start. And so in the religious history of the American people, this book, it said that before uh, Jonathan Edwards had come and preached the sermon, 
It said the churches in New England had fallen to a state and routine formalism, right? They were very routine in their religion, very formal, and there was no real experiential faith. There was, there was no personal faith uh, for most people during that time. And so in many ways, it was like the time in Haggai. They, they were ignoring God. They were turning their backs to God. There was a moral defilement, a spiritual defilement. And so Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon warning them about the reality and the danger of God's judgment. And his last appeal was, therefore let everybody that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. And I think that this is a really great application for us today. Because Haggai gives that same warning, right? Maybe you're here in church today. For you, your faith is routine. Your, your faith is very just a formal thing. You know, you just come because, you know, it's something that you do. But there's no real deep personal faith in Jesus Christ. You've turned your back on Jesus Christ. You've willfully and uh, willingly turned your back to Jesus. But if you've turned your back to Jesus, then there is no substitute for your sin. There's no sacrifice for your sin. There's no way you can meet a holy God. And that's terrible. So many years ago, I met uh, uh, this guy for coffee. He wanted to find out about Christianity. He was an expatriate. And so he asked me this question. He said, you know, I have great respect. One of the men I respect most in my life is the founding father of my nation. He was a good man. He was an exemplary man. He was totally godly in everything he did. And so the question I ask you today is, this man that I respect so highly, who was good, exemplary in character, he didn't know Jesus. So will he go to heaven? And you know, I was like, oh, how do I answer this question without offending this guy, right? I mean, I'm only just meeting him for the first time for coffee. But the answer I gave him was, well, the problem that this man had, as much as he was good, as much as he was exemplary, was he didn't know Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, who is going to be your substitute for your sins? Who is going to sacrifice for your sins? Who is going to make you clean? And that's the fundamental problem, isn't it? So today, as we hear what is being said here in the book of Haggai, let's never be out of Christ, but always in Christ, right? Always in Christ in every way, because only through Christ will we be able to meet with a holy, holy God and will we be clean before God. Now, the passage then ends with the last three verses. In verse 20, it says, The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tells Rebbebo, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So notice here that uh, unlike the other oracles or prophecies of Haggai, which is given to the public, here we are kind of like given an inside, you know, it's almost like we're eavesdropping because Haggai speaks to only one person. That one person is Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. And what does he say? He says that he's going to do a supernatural thing. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. 
And what is this powerful supernatural thing that he's going to do? He's going to overturn royal thrones, shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. He's going to overthrow chariots and their drivers. Now, it's very important here to understand what is happening. Okay, the book of Haggai was in 520 BC. And so they've been living the last 70 years, the last 80 years of great oppression, you know, being kicked around like a football, basically, right? By all these great foreign powers. So 66 years earlier, 586 BC, the great power of Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar had come along, right? They had uh, defeated Judah. They had taken the people out into exile. They had destroyed the temple. Okay, so they had been under one great foreign oppressor, the Babylonians. And 539 BC, King Cyrus the Great comes along. He's the ruler of the Persians. Okay, and now they're under the power of the Persian Empire. But what God says is he's going to overthrow and shatter all these foreign powers and he's going to overthrow chariots and drivers. Now, why these, this strange image of the chariots and the drivers? Well, because if you remember, when God had taken and saved his people out of Egypt in the great exodus, what he had done, he had destroyed Pharaoh's army, his chariots and his horsemen, all of them, by the closing of the sea. And so what God is really saying here is that, you know, overthrowing foreign powers, overthrowing their great kingdoms and their kings is not something abnormal or new or miraculous to me. I've done it before and I'm going to do it again. So what God says is, he's going to shake, overthrow, overturn and shatter these kings and these powers. But what's going to happen next? Well, he says, at the very end to Zerubbabel, I will make you my signet ring. What a strange thing to say, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know what signet ring is. I have wedding ring. What signet ring, right? Well, signet ring in the past is, was something which uh, was very uh, uh, well known, uh, especially for powerful people, kings, for uh, dignitaries, for family. So here in the British Museum, you can actually see a signet ring from 575 BC in Egypt. So around the same period, right? So, okay, signet rings, well known during that time. What do signet rings do? Oh, you can actually buy these signet rings on the, uh, from these shops. Okay, so for 7,100 pounds, more than 10,000 sing dollars, you can buy this ancient Jupiter, Roman Jupiter signet ring. Okay, so what is the purpose of these signet rings? Now, the signet ring is usually uh, emblazoned with a family crest and they are like, they function like a, a signature. In fact, the signet ring is seen as more authentic than your signature, right? Because, you know, anybody can forge your signature, but you always wear your signet ring. And so when you press down on the, on the wax or the clay of the signet ring, it means this is me. It, it, it's authentic. It is, uh, this, this represents me. And so what uh, is happening here is God says he's going to overthrow all the kingdoms. He's going to shatter them and he's going to overturn them. And what's going to happen is Zerubbabel will be his signal ring. Zerubbabel will be, in a sense, his representative. He is going to represent God in the world as a king. 
right? Because that's what the signet ring represents. It's like he he is God's authentic representative in the world. He's going to have power like God. He's going to be a king like God. Now, obviously, the problem is um, Zerubbabel's dead and gone, right? So how is God going to fulfill this prophecy? Well, as we see in the book of the Gospels and the New Testament, it makes a very, very big deal. Uh, there are other passages like this where Zerubbabel is actually part of the line of David, which comes out to the person of Jesus Christ. And the word Christ here means Messiah, Christ, Messiah, King of Kings. And so God fulfills this great promise in Haggai chapter 2 in the signet ring fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So what's going to happen is he is going to shatter all the kingdoms and he's going to put Zerubbabel's offspring, Jesus Christ, as his representative of king of kings in this world. And the kingdom that Jesus is going to rule is not going to be a shakeable kingdom which is going to be overturned or, or, or shattered once again, but rather it's going to be an eternal kingdom. So in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, uh, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So what God is really promising here is he's going to shake and overthrow, overturn and shatter the kings and kingdoms. And he's going to replace it with Jesus, the Lord's signet ring, who will rule over an unshakable kingdom. And what we've learned today is marvelous, right? It blows your mind what we've learned. Because here we see that we began with what is our biggest problem? It is because we are unclean. We cannot meet with a holy God. We face judgment and death. But Jesus, right, not only is our substitute and our sacrifice, which, who makes us clean and holy before God, Jesus is also this Lord's signet ring who's going to bring in this unshakable kingdom. So as we've come to the book of Haggai, as we come to the very end now, uh, what a wonderful thing that we should be hearing about and how great and how thankful we should be towards God. And, and what a great reminder of why we need to always be in Christ because He is the only one who can make us clean and He is the Lord signet ring who will be the king over God's unshakable kingdom. So as we come to uh, the book of Haggai, let's truly be thankful and grateful and blessed for Jesus Christ, the Lord signet ring and our sacrifice for sins. Now, as we came to Haggai, in the beginning, we thought it's just about building God's temple, right? Well, it's much more than that, really. Because as we've seen over the last few weeks, it's really about a few really important things. It's about priorities, what we are busy with. It's about sharing the present and future glory of God's house in Jesus. And as we've seen today, that Jesus is the once-for-all solution to make us clean and his future kingship. So my prayer for all of us as we come to the book of Haggai is to continue to trust in Jesus, 
to make sure our priority is in Jesus, to make sure that we are looking forward confidently uh, to this greater glory in God's house in Jesus. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to thank you for your word to us in the book of Haggai. We thank you so much for it teaches us so much about our times, it teaches us so much about our place before you, and most of all, it teaches us the really good news of who we are and what is going to happen. Dear Father, as we've seen today, we no longer live in 520 BC where we struggle with the problem of uncleanness, defilement. For Jesus, once for all, has solved the problem of cleanness and defilement. Through his death on the cross, he has been our substitute, our sacrifice to pay for our sins. We thank you that he is the future king of your unshakable kingdom. And dear Father, we pray that indeed our priorities may therefore be always to do the things which matter to you and to Jesus as we share the present and future glory of your house in Jesus Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for teaching the Word of God. We will now go into the breakout room to share and reflect on what we learned today. This is the two questions that you can discuss in your breakout room. So the first one is, am I clean and holy before God? Why? Why is it so important to be in Christ and not turn away from Him? Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.